Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Unexpectedly, as I expected not to be here this week. So we were planning not to have quests, but here we are making <clears throat> uh, the best out of a bad situation. But anyway, here we are. The not very expected <laughs> broadcast. Uh, glad to be back with you guys tonight. Because, um, hey, we get to talk about the prophecy of Gondor tonight. Which is pretty awesome. Um, so, uh, 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 so that'll be uh, so that'll be a lot of fun. Um, anyway, so um, let me um, let me just do a couple quick announcements before I forget because I'm prone to forget these things, uh, and then we will jump into the text. Oh, I should say from the beginning, I'm not sure we're going to be able to do the field trip tonight. Uh, Valori couldn't be with us tonight. Uh, she's got. Uh, 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 plague at her house not that plague the normal plague she just has children so uh anyway uh we'll um uh so i we'll, we'll see we'll see where things go at the end but i might not do the normal as i say, I might not do the normal field trip this week might wait for valori to get back next week um but anyway okay so <laughs> yeah Rinru says, children, plague, basically the same thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, okay, so, um, announcements. So, first, let me uh, let everybody know that the schedule for Morgoth's Ring is finally posted. Totally my fault, the delay there. Uh, but, um, but I finally got it, um, got it done. Uh, and, uh, that, and I was, it was actually really challenging. I'm really, I have no idea how long it's going to take us to talk about Morgoth's ring. Uh, there's some factors in there as I was going through it that made it a little puzzling actually, but I took a stab at it and there we are. Uh, and I'm sure we will stick to it very rigidly and faithfully, just like always. But, um, yeah, so Mad Violinist, you should be able to register for it. Uh, there's a, a registration link on the page. It's on the uh, Mythgard.org, uh, uh, Mythgard Academy section now on the webpage. There's a webpage for it. So uh, you should be able to register uh, for the GoToWebinar session for that. And, of course, I'll be broadcasting it on Twitch as usual as well. So that will start next Wednesday, the 18th of April. Of course, in theory, could have started this week. Didn't know that at the time, and we'd already announced it, so rather than messing with that, we're just going to stick to the original schedule and start that. Oh, March. Did I say April? I meant March. 18th of March. That is next Wednesday, not tomorrow, but the week thereafter. Yes, March is exactly what I meant. JJ, thanks for um, uh, posting the uh, uh, that link there. Okay. So, that's going to be a lot of fun. Morgoth's Ring, Volume 10 of the History of Middle-Earth series, contains, of course, a great deal of the... Like, basically, this is the stuff, the Silmarillion stuff, uh, that Tolkien got back to working on as soon as The Lord of the Rings was done. So, like, right after he finished writing The Lord of the Rings and returns with enthusiasm to the Silmarillion, hoping to finish that up and get that out for publication... Uh, that's the stuff that we're going to be looking at, the stuff that he turned to then. And, of course, it contains one of my very favorite pieces that Tolkien ever wrote, and that is the Athrobed, the Athrobeth of Finrod and Andreth. Um, really amazing stuff if you've never read that before. It is uh, uh, 
amazing, and I can't wait to talk about it. So that's what we're going to be doing on Wednesday nights starting next week. And, of course, we'll be opening. We'll be it's almost time for another vote uh, because we're going to be uh, we're going to need to elect our next books. So um, uh, so that'd be pretty cool. Okay, so. That's my first announcement. Morgoth's Ring starting next week, March 18th, Wednesday, March 18th. Uh, and, um, and that's, uh, uh, and that's all up there. Um, okay. Second thing, uh, is summer courses at Signum are open for registration. I would draw a special attention, uh, to the, the live course that we're offering this coming summer, which is a new Star Wars course class taught by Amy Sturgis. Um, this is going to be really great. The, we, we had another Star Wars class that she taught for us several years back, right before Force Awakens came out. Uh, and now uh, she's coming back to do a second Star Wars class, uh, looking back on on the whole thing right now that the, the, the third trilogy is done. So, um, And of course with The Mandalorian and everything else, lots of material there. Um, so, okay. Um, <clears throat> That's uh, there. It is the meaning of Star Wars. Excellent, excellent. Um, uh, yeah, Matt Violinus says, "Am I going to host a course for university administrators to teach them how to do online courses?" Right. I am very ready to do so. Actually, um, if any of you know schools or like you know uh, schools that like want help, I mean, I know that uh, uh, of course Signum is utterly un. Uh, affected by the coronavirus because we already do everything viral, uh, you know, virtually. So, uh, you know, no virus concerns for us. Um, but, um, you know, we're very happy to help uh, uh, those institutions that are less comfortable uh, dealing in that kind of environment. Um, so anyway, yeah, no, I'd be I'd just send people my direction if uh, there's anybody who would uh, uh, like some friendly tips and that... Um, uh, in that, uh, in that regard. Um, okay. So, um, oh yeah. And we're in the middle of that wonderful period of time when daylight savings has changed here, but it's not changed in some places in the world. So, uh, just keep that in mind. It's 10 PM Eastern time. Uh, but again, we've just had daylight savings. So I know if uh, you're in Europe, for instance, it's going to be off by uh, an hour uh, from normal. So anyway, uh, all right. Uh, so the third thing then, um, uh, the third thing is moots, upcoming moots. All, let me say this very clearly, all of our upcoming moots are happening. We are not canceling any of our moots. Um, uh, I am not panicking about any viruses of any kind, uh, and I have no fear of them. Um, we're going to, so we're going to hold our uh, our events as long as it's possible and legal, uh, which so far it looks like it is. Uh, so as of now, of course, there is some uncertainty, obviously, in the. Uh, you know, in the current climate and and with uh, local states and cities sometimes acting unpredictably in these regards, but um, we're uh, uh, we're still uh, planning to have everything. Yes, 
Karita, I saw that you registered for Mythmoot today. That's gonna be it's gonna be awesome. Mythmoot is gonna be so much fun this year, uh, and uh, I'm not worried about. It. Let me get to Mythmoot last. First, we have of course our two regional moots coming up. We've got Sunshine Moot uh, in Oviedo. I think that's how you pronounce it. I was corrected in my pronunciation on Friday by by uh, a local. I think it's Oviedo, Florida. O v i e d o, Florida, uh, near Orlando. Um, and um, uh, anyway, so we're um, uh, yeah, Rinrus. There are a lot of principalities that are forcing people to cancel events, um, but that's okay. Again, not worried. Um, so we're having um, uh, we're having our we're having Sunshine Moot in Oviedo, Florida, uh, next Saturday. Uh, that is Saturday, March. 21st <laughs> forgetting my numbers and then uh we're having um uh magnolia moot down in charlotte north carolina on the 18th of april okay so both of those things are happening um don't worry we'll all be very safe and wash our hands frequently but we'll be fine um and um and yeah, so glad you guys who have registered for Mythmoot. A couple things I wanted to say about Mythmoot registration. Um, there's not really much realistic chance that our regional moots are going to be canceled. They're tiny. Uh, and they're, I think they are well beneath the notice of any civic bodies whatsoever, actually. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Ron of Gondor, for promising not to lick anybody at Sunshine Mood. That's very thoughtful, uh, and I'm sure everyone will appreciate that. Um, but... Um, Anyway, so uh, uh, so yeah, so I'm not worried about our regional moots. Myth moot, of course, is going to be a little bit bigger, and what's more, it's at the National Conference Center, which you know, I, who knows? But it's also in three and a half months, and again, I'm really not worried about this. So let let me just let me just explain, okay, how this is going to work. Registering for Myth moot is not a is is a non-risky proposition, and I just wanted to make sure that that's really clear to everybody. Obviously, we know things are really wacky right now, and that people and principalities are going completely insane right now. Um, and that I don't think will be a permanent state of affairs, uh, and I do believe that uh, the insanity is very likely to have passed prior to uh, the end of June. Um, however, um, just please know that we have a really generous uh, uh, cancellation policy. Like, if something happens, if you register for Mythmoot now and something happens that's going to prevent you, if you're under quarantine or there's some travel ban or whatever, it doesn't really matter what it is, um, you know, then we're going to, uh, we're going to, refund you like it's fine you're not we're not going to stick you for either either your uh your ticket or your room it's fine um you know so just register it's you know if if you want to come if you plan to come great don't let like not knowing what's going to happen as far as uh, uh travel and everything like that uh you know or or like you know will the state shut us down or something like that don't let that get in your way um, we are proceeding. We are planning to proceed full speed ahead. I have no concerns, no problems with Mythmoot. Um, if others end up having problem with us, then we'll deal with it and we'll do what we've got to do. But certainly in either case, no matter what happens, if you are prevented from coming, 
then we'll refund you. Um, if we are prevented from holding it forcibly, then we'll refund you. So um, it's um, it's it's fine. So I just wanted to make sure everybody knew because there's a lot. I mean, right now I know is a really difficult time to plan uh, for travel and events and things like that uh, because everything seems up in the air and uh, uh, and um, uh, and uncertain. So. Um, anyway, I just would, uh, strongly recommend that you come if you possibly can. Uh, and, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be great. It is true. Uh, uh, Sharon, of course we do have the moot cast option, which we did last year and we're going to do again this year, uh, which is being able to attend, uh, virtually the whole event live. Um, so myth, let me not make assumptions here. Myth moot is from uh, the 25th through the 28th of June in Leesburg, Virginia at the national conference center at Leesburg, Virginia. Um, so those, that's the time and place of myth moot. You can find out more information and, uh, get the link to our registration and everything at signumuniversity.org slash myth moot. Um, and, um, uh, anyway, so yeah, Green Dragon, I, I, yes, airline tickets are pretty cheap at the moment. I agree. Uh, the only the only difference for me, I'm saying I've actually been shopping for airline tickets lately. Uh, it's a great time to shop for airline tickets. Uh, the only thing is I'm now buying uh, like trip insurance, which I never used to buy because it was a waste of money. Less so now, I find. Uh, but uh, but anyway, with. Uh, uh, with that one change, everything is uh, everything is normal. Um, but um, anyway, so uh, excellent. Yes, Evil Doctor Canada. I saw that you signed up. That was great. I was so glad you can make it up this year. That's gonna be uh, that's gonna be a lot of fun. So anyway, I just wanted to encourage everybody I, because of so the um, early bird pricing was uh, meant to end like this weekend, um, but like. It, it seemed a little hard right, like right now in the middle of like, you know, with this wave of recent cancellations of things and everything, um, we felt kind of bad about the timing of that. So we, we, we extended the early bird pricing out until the, the 20th uh, of March. That's through through next week, through next Friday. Um, uh, just just to give people a little bit more time and and, and uh, give this uh, kind of a chance to... Um, uh, to just sort of see where things are going and everything. I, I, I will tell you, I very firmly believe things are going to look very different in a month or two than they look right now. I know that, th- you know, we are currently at the point of maximum cultural uncertainty, I think, about this uncertainty, I say. Maximum uncertainty because right now the fear of the spread of coronavirus is that it's you know, is at its height, um, but people haven't actually seen it. And so therefore, you know, everyone has these big fears about what this thing that they haven't seen, but they've heard all these scary things about is going to actually look like. Um, I, I think that in a month or two, things are going to look very different uh, to a lot of people. Um, uh, Evil Dr. Cannon, I don't uh, know of any update on lodging. Yeah, not yet. Um, we're waiting for a word uh, on that. Uh, we're kind of at the mercy of the um uh of the convention center there um but we will definitely uh get that out and uh, evil dr cannon we will be sending uh email out to people who have signed up uh about that so um you don't have to you don't have to just 
check in. We'll check in with you uh, about that. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Kit, oh, I know some people are high risk and I, I get that. But of course, like that's high risk for lots of things, right? I mean, it's not something to be taken lightly, like neither is the flu, right? 20,000 people have died from the flu, the regular flu this year. Like, it happens. People are at risk and, and, and you know, disease is, is, is uh, no fun, right? Uh, and, can be, and many diseases can be dangerous a lot. Um, but, um, but, but yes, um, this is, uh, as I say, I, everything's going to be fine. I think things are going to look different in a few months. And again, if, and if you're concerned and if you're at high, if, if you're at risk and, and you feel like it is more prudent for you to not be part of a larger gathering, like obviously we totally understand that. Um, and Mootcast is really the perfect solution there because not only do you get, um, can you attend live any session you want to do, but you will also get access to the archived recordings of all the sessions uh, so that you can like not miss any of them actually. So anyway, so that's, again, we, we, I'm, I'm, you know, in retrospect, really glad, of course, under the circumstances, of course, I was really glad anyway, that we had Mootcast last year. Um, But I'm especially glad this year that we have it. So we have that option uh, for people. Um, but and yes, Simon, it is true that Mootcast is also included in in-person registration. So if you register at all, even just for one day uh, of MythMoot, you will get access to the full archive of recordings there as well. So you do get you do get MythMoot uh, for uh, uh, for for everything. And it's true, Sharon. Uh, Drew as was just saying you could watch Moodcast in your PJs. And Sharon was saying you could actually probably attend live in your PJs. We wouldn't judge. It's true. It's totally true. <laughs> okay. Um, so, again, last, um, uh, last, um, uh, last, uh, uh, remind, uh, last overview here. Saturday, March 21st, it's 10 days from now, 11 days from now, Sunshine Moot in Oviedo, Florida. Please, if you're anywhere in the area, uh, come. It's going to be really, really great. I can't wait. I'm, I'm, I've uh, been looking at the list of folks who are already registered, uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Second uh, is Magnolia Moot in Charlotte, North Carolina on the 18th of April. Um, uh, so please, again, if you're anywhere around there and can come in for uh, Magnolia Moot, registration is open for that as well. And then we have, of course, Myth Moot at the end of June. Encourage you to um, uh, to uh, come to that. So, all right, very good. Um, oh wait, and sorry, Dime, I saw your question earlier. I don't. I'm. I'm going to be following up about Dragon Moot, I promise. Uh, there are a couple things that we've been waiting on for that, so I haven't heard the definite, definite confirmation on that yet, but I'm, I will try uh, to get some more specific information for you on that as soon as I can. Um, however, Maple Moot is definite now. Toronto! Toronto, we're going to Canada! At last! We've been wanting to do a Canadian moot for a couple years now. Uh, So we're going to be doing a Canadian moot, Maple Moot, in August. August 8th uh, in Toronto. Um, uh, So so that'll be... uh, That'll be pretty cool. Oh, Brandon, you moved to Utah? Oh, man! So you're not going to be able to come to Middlemoot anymore. That's so sad. Well... 
you know, that is a part of the country where uh, we um, we do need a moot. But I got to tell you also, it's a hard part of the country to do moots in, like the whole Rocky Mountain area, right? And we've had people in Denver and, and in Montana and, you know, trying to want to organize moots. And it's been um, um, challenging. It's challenging because it's hard. It's like there's no spot that's convenient to multiple places. It's sort of all or nothing. Um, uh, but, um, <laughs> Muta <laughs> belongs, mom, you think? <laughs> okay. Maybe, maybe by the way. Um, and, uh, I saw a couple of you, uh, saying earlier that you should get a, a moot in, um, um, uh, in Ohio, with which I completely agree, by the way, Ohio would be a great, uh, place. I know like, what we're calling them our Midwest mood, right, is really, you know, like next year is going to be back in Kansas City again, which I've been told firmly is Great Plains, not the Midwest. Anyway, point is there's like a big, huge chunk of uh, the country there between the Iowa, Kansas City, uh, 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 you know, line there that we're going back and forth between and um, uh, going out and at Seattle. Absolutely, I agree. Seattle would also be good. That the, the, so the, the the ones I've really wanted to put together, um, I've really wanted to see an Ohio moot. I've really wanted to see a Canadian moot, and I've really wanted to see a Seattle moot. Those three have been really at the top of my list for a while. Um, Toronto's happening this year, so hey, who knows? Ohio or um, um, or any of the uh, or one of the the mountain options. You know, we'll see. Um, uh, and, um, anyway, so, or, 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 or Seattle again, that would be, uh, that would be, that would be pretty cool. Um, so anyway, enough chatter about future moods, but, um, uh, oh, and Angus, we do one in New England. We did an, our first New England moot, uh, in September of this past year of 2019, and it's going to happen again, probably early October. Um, I think first weekend of October is what we're sort of thinking of for New England moot uh, this coming year. So um, (laughs) fall this year is going to be insane uh, for uh, uh, moot travel. Uh, So we'll see. Um, Yeah. Okay. Um, All right. Uh, So yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll, We'll see what happens there. Okay, I have an idea. Let's talk about Boromir. So, y'all, at the risk, I know y'all are going to laugh at me, but I want to go back very briefly because I was, um, I was feeling guilty. I was feeling guilty. I've been, I've been reflecting on our conversation from last week, and I've been feeling guilty because I broke my rule. I broke one of my rules last week, and I didn't even notice I was doing it. Uh, in my defense, so I just recently finished my annual reread of The Lord of the Rings, and so I had just been reading The Return of the King, and so I really had Faramir and Return of the King stuff on the brain uh, since I've been thinking about it a lot since I just read it. Um, but that's no excuse. The rule, of course, that I broke is to import into the text that we're reading stuff that we don't learn until later on in the text, 
obviously it's not like it's irrelevant or illegal for some reason to talk about that. But I want to try, as we've been doing, I want to try to understand the text on its own terms. What do we learn from here? You're right, praise for you. There are more guidelines than actual rules. Um, so, um, yes, music, exactly. You, you, uh, uh, you, uh, you have uh, nailed exactly what I was uncomfortable about. So I just wanted to return for a moment um, to... Boromir's description of the dream, right? Um, he says, so we talked a lot about, we talked a lot about this whole slide, of course, last week, but I wanted to come to the end for on the eve of the sudden assault, a dream came to my brother in a troubled sleep and afterwards a like dream came off to him again and once to me. Now, what do you notice about this page vis-a-vis Boromir's brother, right? We immediately started talking about Faramir and everything last year. Yes, Mad Violence, he is not named, right? We do not know what Bor- we know nothing. Well, not quite nothing. In fact, let's instead ask this question um, let's ask this, this question differently, right? Um, what do we know about Boromir's brother? What do we know? He's related to Boromir. Okay. All right. Yes. So we know that Boromir has a brother. He doesn't even say explicitly that his brother is younger than he is. Right? We don't, we don't know that. Edith Eldora, yes. We know that he had the dream multiple times. Right? So he seems to be in some way, I don't know what, either sensitive to this or something like that. Um, uh... Good. Fourth Dauntless, yes. Good. We also know that he is a formidable warrior, right? And we know this because he, along with Boromir and two others, were the last four people to hold the bridge while it was thrown down behind them. Notice what what happened there. And also, notice how incredible that is. We didn't even stop to really pause and notice how what, what, what this tells us about Boromir, right? Think of the situation here. There's the bridge over the Anduin. Right, It's the only way to cross the Anduin for some space in either direction, right? A bit like between there and Kyra Andros, and it's uncertain exactly how far in the south, right? Um, uh, this bridge was the only way to cross the river. And the enemy had been pressing them, right? The enemy has driven them out of Ithilien. So the, the, the Gondorian forces, which have been on the east bank, right, which have been out in Ithilien, have been driven back. So Boromir and Faramir led a fighting retreat back to the bridge, right? Then they have to destroy the bridge to prevent the enemy from just marching straight across and attacking the city, right? So they have to destroy the bridge, which means, but of course, the enemy's not going to just let him do that, right? So, in order for the bridge to be destroyed, some people, right, a small group of warriors had to stand on the far end of the bridge and guard it and hold back the entire army, right, at the choke point of the bridge to give people enough time to destroy the bridge behind them and cut them off with the enemy, right? So that is um, 
that is a remarkable thing. And if you think about it, the commander in charge, that job, I mean, let's be quite blunt about that. That job is a suicide job. Right? I mean, the odds of surviving that are very low. Now, keep in mind, I don't think there were four people assigned to this. I am sure that there was a company of people who were assigned to this, right? Probably, I don't know how many, but probably quite a few, right? At least 30, 50, 100? I don't know. Four survived. Four survived. Um, four, notice he says, I was in the company that held the bridge until it was cast down behind us. Four only were saved by swimming, right? Most of them died, presumably in battle, right? In combat at the bridgehead. And, um, uh, and some of them also presumably were drowned, right? If others of them were saved. And yes, as several of you are saying, um, yes, Zephan, as far as we can see, there's no reason to think that. I, I, so, yes, did the Gondorians knowingly cast down the bridge with the only heirs still on the east side cut off with the enemy? Yes, at presumably the command and insistence of their their captain and his primary lieutenant, his brother, right? Um, yes, Simon, I'm sure many of them were shot by arrows while swimming like Isildur was. Absolutely. Um, so that's what happened. Apparently, on this day, uh, and remember, this is the day that he was describing with the witch king, Right. With the Black Rider, the thing that they had not seen before. Um, so the Witch King is there. They're fighting against the Witch King's army on the day that he takes the field in person for the first time in 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 in, in thousand, a couple thousand years. Right. Well, at least one thousand years. First time uh, in three thousand years in Gondor, as we were talking about. Um, so. This is an amazing, amazing thing, right? This tells us a lot about Boromir, I think. And, of course, by extension, about his unnamed brother as well, right? Um, because, first, we've learned that Boromir is not the kind of commander who is going to command a company, of even a company who's going to volunteer to do this and leave them to do that. He is going to lead them. Not only does he lead from the front, right? He leads from the back during a retreat, right? That is, he posts himself in what they would, uh, what the English army would have called the forlorn hope, right? Um, and it is almost a given that everyone on that bridgehead was going to die. Everyone would have expected everybody on that bridgehead to die. Boromir puts himself personally in charge of the Forlorn Hope, and his brother is there with him. Now, um, we don't know. He says nothing about that, right? Um, I cannot imagine um, that um, that was Boromir's idea, right? I think that Boromir... 
I would guess that Boromir would not have said, hey, yeah, let's take both. Let's take the only two heirs of our father and let's put them both uh, on the bridgehead, right? Uh, and cut them off from the army and probably kill the both of, of us, right? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, however, he's there, right? I would assume, right? I would assume that um, Faramir, excuse me, the brother, right? Boromir's brother must have insisted, must have refused to leave, right? I think that it seems to me safe to conclude some kind of independent stubbornness on the part of Boromir's brother and certainly of Boromir himself and courage, very much courage on both of their parts and, well, lack of prudence, right? I mean, for neither of them did the... And it's not just personal prudence. In the, It's not just like... Um, you know, like a, a football player making a business decision, right? It's not even it's not even prudence on that sort of level. It would not be cowardice to say maybe we should we're the only heirs of our father, the Lord of Gondor. Maybe one of us should not stay right behind. Um I mean Yeah, Gilgonthir, what happens to the line of stewards if they both die? I mean, it dies out unless Denethor marries again. Quick, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly, Karina. They must have missed the whole spare part of the heir and a spare, right? Exactly, yeah. No, so, I mean, both of them um, disregard that really fundamental piece. Not only if it's not, again, it's not personal prudence, it's about statecraft, right? prudential statecraft um both of them consider the preservation of the city the um protection of that bridgehead the leadership of their people um to be more important than their own safety or even in this sense the uh uh the preservation of their of their line right um but um now, Rowan, great question. Rowan says that Boromir says, I was in the company that held the bridge. He does not say that he was leading that company. Um, now, we are going to learn later that he is, in fact, uh, the captain general of the Gondorian army. I believe that, uh, Rowan, I think that even here we have every reason to think that Boromir is being modest here. Um, uh, the way that he uses we through, and we talked about this some last time, it's not a royal we uh, exactly, and yet it's a we which identifies uh, with the army. Um, uh, no, Fort Dauntless, we don't have any reason at this time to think that Boromir has only one unnamed brother. No, no, we, have, we know nothing about Boromir's family, except for what he's told us, which is almost nothing. Indeed, we don't even yet know. Do we yet know that he's the son of the steward? I don't think we do. Um, has he told us that? I don't think he's told us that, right? Um, so it is true that we don't 
quite yet even have the data to be drawing this conclusion about heirs and spares, right? Um, but that we will learn much sooner than we're going to learn anything about Faramir, right? And Faramir's name or perspective. Um, but, um, oh boy, Karita, yeah. Karita says, speaking of prudential statecraft, um, it hasn't been mentioned yet that either of these, that neither of these brothers have married and, and, uh, gotten an heir of their own. No. Um, uh, the men of Gondor and Rohan are inexcusably and inexplicably, indefensibly lax in this regard. Um, Theodred, Eowyn, sorry, Aemir, I mean, Theodred, Aemir, Faramir, and Boromir, all by rights, should be married and producing as many heirs as possible a long time before uh, the events of the Lord of the Rings. Um, I mean, there's no good excuse in that way. Arden Crayon, of course, points out that Aragorn's not exactly been in a hurry himself. He at least has a special circumstance, right? Uh, it's not like he hasn't noticed girls yet or anything, right? But, um, uh, yeah, Aranas, absolutely. Boy, boy, I mean, the heir begetting process for someone in his position should have started when he was 17 or 18, at the latest, right? Um, absolutely at the latest. Now, but again, Aragorn, Aragorn's in a different place, right? And honestly, I can't fault Aragorn. Remember where Aragorn, first of all, Aragorn was 20 uh, when he fell in love uh, with Arwen, right? So he wasn't exactly delaying real long, right, before he made his choice. And secondly, um, Aragorn has has some uh, some excuse, actually, right? Because, I mean, look, he has a girlfriend, right? Um, he's got plans. Um, he's going to marry, and he's going to beget heirs, or the world's going to end, one or the other, right? So either he's going to be defeated and they're all going down and it won't matter if he'd had an heir or not, or they're going to win. And then he's going to have an heir afterwards, in which case it'll be fine. So like it's part of the whole, the hour has come scenario for Aragorn, I think. So I don't, I don't blame Aragorn at all. He's in a different kind of, um, um, situation. And yet Marianne, you're right. Absolutely right. 20 is really pretty young for one of the Dunedain to, uh, uh, to do this. Um, but, um, but, but, uh, yeah, exactly. No, Katriana, I don't see him having somebody on the side just to, you know, ensure that the line goes on while he waits for Elrond's daughter. Yeah, no, I don't think that's going to work out. Um, but, um, anyway, so yeah, so I'm totally fine with, uh, with Aragorn, but I get Boromir, Theodred, Faramir, come on. Seriously, what are you doing? What exactly are you thinking? Um, I mean, it's just um, inexcusable, inexplicable. Tony, yeah, Theodred. How old is Theodred? He's like almost 40 or something. I mean, honestly, what is wrong with you? He should be a grandfather, practically. I mean, seriously, what on earth are you thinking? 
No clue. No clue. Okay. Um, but anyway, that's an issue for another time. Um, what was I thinking about? Um, um, Oh, yeah. Back to the brother. Okay. So, uh, back to the question about what do we learn about the brother? We don't yet know who he is. So, let's set aside for a, for a little while the... Um, uh, uh, for uh, the the whole airship question, right? Because again, we've not been explicitly told that yet. We know that his brother is brave. We know his brother can swim, as somebody pointed out, right? Um, we know his brother is loyal and faithful to him. I mean, the two of them were fighting side by side and and willing to die together or for each other. Um. um I think that we can infer that the anonymous brother has a closer connection to the agents of fate than Boromir. There is some reason why he received the dream oft, whereas Boromir received it once. Um, yeah, we have no reason, Brandon, to think that he's... We have no data that suggests that Boromir's brother is very different from him. Indeed, the only distinction that we get about them, right, between them, from Boromir's words here, is the fact that the dream came many times to his brother, that it came originally to his brother, and that it came many times often afterwards to him and only once to Boromir. Um, so, yes, there is... He has nothing about being a wizard's pupil, um, but there is something about him being a dreamer, prophetic, Right? There's something sort of, um, I don't know, uh, you know, Joseph from the book of Genesis about him, right? Um, uh, as far as we can see. Um, Tony wants us to consider why he doesn't name his brother. Um, I don't know. Um <laughs> yes, JJ. You may say that he's a dreamer, but he's not the only one. Yeah, that's true. Um, on the one hand, he's not going to feel like he needs to say his brother's name because his brother's name is going to mean anything to anybody there, um, except to Gandalf, who doesn't need to be told <laughs> his brother's name, right? Um, so... Those who know don't need to be told, and those who don't know don't need to be told, uh, I think, in part. Um, but, um, uh, Tony, when did he say his father's name? When does he do that? Did I, am I forgetting? Um, 
Uh, yeah, so, so hang on a second. Uh, yes. Um, several of you have been asking, had Tolkien even invented Faramir at this point? No. Emphatically, definitely no. Tol not only had Tolkien not invented Faramir's character when he wrote this, he hadn't invented Faramir's character when... Remember when Sam wakes up after seeing the Oliphant from his nap, his post-Oliphant nap, and uh, sees Frodo in the middle of an interrogation circle being uh, interrogated by the Gondorian captain? When Tolkien wrote that scene, that is the scene of Frodo's um, uh, interrogation... By the Gondorian captain, Tolkien still hadn't invented the character of Faramir. Um, originally, the dude who interrogates Frodo is just a Gondorian captain. I'm forgetting his name now, original name. But he's not the son of the Lord of the City or the brother of Boromir. He's just a dude. He's just a captain. And therefore, therefore, the decision that he has, the call he has to make about to arrest Frodo, to execute Frodo or whatever, he has clear orders, right? And he's not Faramir, when Faramir makes that makes his judgment, right, sets up that, you know, court of justice uh and deems his doom uh about the said Frodo uh in uh, uh in Hanun, he has authority, right? Not absolute authority, he's still subject to his father, the Lord of the City. But still, he's the second in command, right? So he has a certain degree of discretion. The original character did not, right? He was just a captain, so he is, like, facing court-martial, essentially. He's, he's in a Baragon situation, right, um, when he is, has to make his decision. That's the original scenario that Tolkien wrote. Faramond, that sounds a little familiar, might be Faramond, Um uh, <clears throat> okay. Anyway, so it wasn't until so you so you remember how it goes in the two towers, right? After the trial, when they're walking back to Hanithanun, and Faramir and Frodo have their follow-up conversation, right? That is when the character of Faramir begins to emerge, and that that's when and then he gets um, Tolkien goes back and edits uh, the interrogation scene. Uh, to take Faramir's character as it had developed in their conversation together. This happens to Tolkien a lot. Dialogue. When characters start talking and he starts writing down what characters are saying, that is very often when things, when stories, when the story grows for Tolkien. Not just the characters themselves, but the whole sub-creation tends to grow out of conversations. Um, uh, so... Yeah. Yes, we're getting ahead of ourselves again, Simon. But I'm trying to answer the question, did Faramir exist now? And no, definitely no, he didn't exist now. Um, yes. Now, Arden Crayon, that's an excellent question. Could somebody look it up? Somebody look it up in Return of the Shadow. The first version of the Council of Elrond. Does Boromir mention his brother? I'm forgetting. I can't remember offhand. So somebody look that up for me? Um... Did he have an unnamed brother who later on Tolkien... I can't remember which happened first. Falborn! Falborn. That was it, Bruinier. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, 
Yeah, yeah, good. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to remember Arden Crayon if Boromir alone got the dream in the original version. Um, but anyhow, okay. But yes, for now, he is here. <clears throat> but the question, his brother received the vision, and yet he, Boromir, came to the council. Boromir is the one who undertook the journey, right? Um, the reason for that is nowhere explained. It's possible, of course, to think, or it might be possible to think, well, if his, his brother is the dreamer and he is the warrior, right? So it was a long and dangerous journey. So, of course, the big studly brother undertook that, not the, uh, you know, the measly, uh, wimpy dreamer brother undertook it. That seems self-explanatory enough. Except, of course, we already know that his brother is not, uh, un, you know... Uh, invalid or attilated dreamer, right? It's not a jock versus nerd situation, Angrist, exactly, right? Because both of them were on the bridgehead and both of them survived by, were saved by swimming, which keep in mind, several of you already said this in the chat, but it is definitely worth emphasizing. Swimming across the river Anduin, period. And swimming across the river Anduin, possibly in armor, right, is a non- it, that's a significant feat, right? Four only were saved by swimming. Um, I suspect, again, that there were many who attempted it, but were drowned. Um, so, um, so yes, the fact that Faramir, his brother, excuse me, the fact that Boromir's brother succeeded in saving himself by swimming across the River Anduin um, shows he is, uh, um, he's very capable. Right. Um, uh, yeah, Tony, I agree. It's more of a Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw situation uh, than a jock versus nerd situation. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so. I feel a little bit better having gone back and talked about that again from the point of view of this passage, at least to some extent. Um, yeah, Simon, exactly. Simon says, swimming across the Anduin is impressive, let alone doing it in armor after fighting for your life for several hours. And even if they did manage to throw off their mail shirts and, uh, you know, jump in without their mail. Uh, and again, why would they be permitted to do this? I mean, there are four of them on the bridge against the entire army. I can't imagine that they called time out to take their armor off before jumping in the river. Um, but, uh, ah, awesome, JJ. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So this is, uh, a quote from the fourth version of the council of Elrond in the treason of Isengard. Um, a dream came many months ago to the Lord of Minas Tirith in the midst of a troubled sleep. And afterwards, a like dream came to many others in the city and even to me says Boromir. I love that. Boromir's actually more humble in the older version, and even to me, right? And even to me, the least of its citizens, or the most unlikely dreamer is almost the implication of that even, right? Um, you know, it's like the opposite of saying, like, and of course to me, right? No. And even to me, right? Love that. Love that. Um, okay, so it was originally the Lord of Minas Tirith's 
dream. Great. Okay. Um, <laughs> JJ is suggesting that that should be our reenactment. We should try to swim the Potomac and see how many of us survive. Yeah. No, actually, the Potomac is right next to the convention center. Uh, you just go down the grounds and the river's right there. So, absolutely. This is, uh, yeah, so we'll get some armor. And we'll see and we'll see what percentage of us survive so that we can estimate how many people probably started off from the other side. And we'll need archers. You're right. We need people to shoot at us while we're doing it. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's um, that's good. That's good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> The door award is not amused by this suggestion. <laughs> yeah, no, this is this this is a great plan. I don't see what could go wrong. Um, yeah, Maelstrom says, "Who wants to be the Orcish army?" I think we're going to get way more people signing up to shoot arrows at us than to uh, uh, than to attempt to swim the Potomac with us. Um, <laughs> Tony say Tony and Evil Doctor Cannon both volunteered to be the Witch King. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Very good. Excellent. Excellent. I think this is this is a brilliant plan. <laughs> this, this, yes, this will put Signum's legal counsel to its test. Exactly right. Can we design a waiver form sufficiently watertight? Anyway, um, uh, oh, very good. Okay, so, um, <laughs> so the dream was originally. Denethor's dream, originally the Lord of Minas Tirith's dream. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that means, I believe, that that means that <clears throat> the reference to the brother here is made with Faramir in mind. Tolkien went back and after the invention of Faramir, Tolkien went back and edited this. That is to say, the dream... So there's two interesting things about this, right? One, the dream is considered... Once the character of Faramir was invented, the dream was considered to be most appropriate for him by Far by Tolkien. So Tolkien went back and changed it, right? Um, uh, Tolkien went back and changed it so as to make it Faramir's dream. That's important, I think. Right. Well, it will be important when we consider Faramir's uh, character, you know, a little bit down the road. The second thing that is interesting about this is that the fact that it was not Boromir's dream primarily is there from the beginning, right? Um, it wasn't ever Fa Boromir's own dream passed off to Faramir. Oh, by the way, those of you who are watching on Twitter and wondering where the other comments are, they're on our Discord channel. Um, so if you go, simplest thing, go to twitch.tv slash signumu um, and you can join in the Twitch chat there and they can give you the link straight from there to join us on Discord or you can join us in the Twitch chat and I can see those comments as well. Um, so just if you wanted to uh, with the comments with others, that's the that's the way to do that. Okay, um, <clears throat> so uh, so that's um, uh, 
that's where it's and it's easier because I can see the Twitter comments. But um, I, I, as they say, that Periscope has not been working. They screwed up Periscope, Periscope somehow a couple months back, such that now when I broadcast on Twitter in landscape mode, which I always do, the comments still come up from the bottom, 90 degrees rotated. So I'm like straining to try to read them uh, as they come up. So anyway, it's a little simpler to read them on Discord. Discord. Anyway, okay. Um, so... Boromir. Right. It's never, it was never his dream. But again, notice, <clears throat> notice that the, um, uh, notice that the context changes tremendously, right? When it's the Lord of Minas Tirith, his father, having the dreams, he is coming on his father's behalf. Right, he is sparing his father. His father himself, the Warden Minister himself, isn't going to schlep up to Rivendell. Right, um, he is doing something almost self-sacrificing. Right, he is taking the danger of the journey upon himself for the sake of the Lord of Minas Tirith, um, putting himself in, you know, stepping forward to undertake this on behalf of the Lord of his city, which seems totally appropriate. Right, the question, though, it. It's the context is much less clear when it's his brother who gets the dreams, right? Why he would be there on behalf of the Lord of Minas Tirith? That's a no-brainer, right? Really easy. Um, but it's much less easy to see why he why he's here instead of his brother. Um, now that is a question that is not going to be answered for us in this passage, right? Nowhere in this um, chapter are we going to be able to conclude an answer to that question. But I do think that that question um, that question is open to be asked. Um, Tolkien invited, invites, I believe, that question by making the change that he does. By turning it from a normal, perfectly obvious, acceptable chain of command issue, right? Uh, to now this much less certain thing, right? Um, yeah. Mike, it is possible that they could have come together and his brother died on the way or something or they got separated, but I, th I think he would mention that. Um, he did say he traveled alone for 110 days, and I think he would have mentioned his dead brother if that had happened. Um, uh, is it important that Faramir is associated with Gandalf, Tony? Um, yeah, yes, I guess I would say. Um, I don't, I certainly don't think it's irrelevant to the question. Um, uh, but yeah, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to take that one up in book four. Okay. Um, yeah, exactly. There's no association here. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Simon says, is it significant 
that Boromir says, in this evil hour, I have come on an errand instead of I have been sent on an errand. Is it significant? Yeah, I think it is. Um, the significance, I would say, is that he does not present himself as, and I don't think he sees himself as, a messenger, right? Um, if he were only, you know, a, you know, like a, a private in the Gondorian army who had been chosen for some reason to take this message, if he were the equivalent of Hirgon, the dude who brings the red arrow to Theoden, right? I mean, if he were just an errand rider, if he were just a messenger sent, which he could have done, by the way, right? Totally possible that... Um, I mean, it's that is at least it's within the realm of imagination that um, Denethor could have been like, okay, um, you red shirt over there, can you? Uh, I I got a message to you for Elrond, half elven of images. Might take you a while. It's that way. Get going, right? Totally could theoretically have done that, but Boromir is not in that role. Does not see himself in that role clearly. Yeah, Catriona, he's here as an envoy, not as a courier. Absolutely. Um, he sees himself. I mean, um, he sees himself definitely as speaking on behalf of Gondor, not with the authority, not the royal we. Right? He he is he is not Gondor yet. Um, he does not rule, um, but he um, um, but he does have um, uh, he does have the um, uh, the authority to speak on behalf of Gondor, and he definitely is representing the Gondorian. He's not just like, hey, I'm an eyewitness, and I can tell you. I mean, he does present that way, but he's definitely more than that. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah, sorry, and let me not make any assumptions here. Um, uh, uh, Dub Live was asking on the Twitch chat, um, the first drafts that I was talking about, the earlier drafts, yeah. Um, the, those are in the history of Middle-earth. Uh, the volumes, The Return of the Shadow, The Treason of Isengard, and The War of the Ring, principally, and then a little bit into uh, uh, Sauron Defeated. Um, that's where you can read uh, about all the earlier drafts of The Lord of the Rings, Really awesome, fascinating stuff. I did a read-through of those with the Mythgard Academy. So if you go to the Signum University YouTube channel um, and go to the Mythgard Academy uh, playlists, you'll be able to find the playlists for the, our discussions of all four of those volumes. Um, so if you want to kind of go through it with me, um, History of Middle-Earth isn't like the most user-friendly book you'll ever have read in your life. Um uh, but we, again, we go through it together uh, in those sessions. So I just wanted it for people who are interested to learn more about the earlier drafts. Definitely recommend reading those volumes. And um, those classes were super fun to go through. Um, anyway, okay. So, um, let's see. Um, Yes, for Thoughtless, I agree. We should remember to ask what would have happened if Faramir went to Rivendell and said. Um, yes, we absolutely should remember to ask that question. I look forward to asking and discussing that question um, when the day comes that we get to a window on the West, um, which will not be long now. Um Let's read the next slide. In that dream, I thought the eastern sky grew dark, and there was a growing thunder, 
but in the west a pale light lingered, and out of it I heard a voice, remote but clear, crying, Seek for the sword that was broken, in Imladris it dwells. There shall be counsels taken, stronger than Morgul's spells. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, for Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. Of these words we could understand little, and we spoke to our father, Denethor, lord of Minas Tirith, wise in the lore of Gondor, there's his first naming. And, of course, his first revelation of his own identity, right, as heir, of, well, son of the lord. He still has not yet said who is the elder between him and his brother. This only would he say, that Imladris was of old the name among the elves of a far northern dale, where Elrond the half-elven dwelt, greatest of lore-masters. Therefore my brother, seeing how desperate was our need, was eager to heed the dream and seek for Imladris. But since the way was full of doubt and danger, I took the journey upon myself. Loth was my father to give me leave, and long have I wandered by, lo by roads forgotten, seeking the house of Elrond, of which many had heard, but few knew where it lay. Okay. Yes, capital W West, I agree. That seems, um, that seems uh, significant, Brandon. Definitely. And I think I'll still be alive when we get to book four. I think, I think I'm likely to finish The Lord of the Rings. I think we'll see. Um, three of my grandparents are yet living. We're, we're, uh, I, 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 I come from reasonably long lived stock of mother's side and father's side. So we'll see. Um, uh, okay. Oh my goodness. There is so much that we can learn from this quote. Um, since we've been talking about it, let's do something unorthodox and talk about the second paragraph first. Um, uh, yeah. Um, his talking about taking it on himself. So, okay, let's... Tom, I agree with you. This only, would he say, is a very interesting clause, right? This only, would he say, that Imladris was of old, the name among the elves of a far northern dale, where Elrond the half-elven dwelt, greatest of lore masters. Okay. Now, it is possible possible that um, here's one possible reading of this. One possible reading of this is that that's all he knew, right? Denethor knew no more than this. But Boromir doesn't like to say that, right? It does imply that he knows more than he said, right? Uh, you know, this only what he say makes it sound like Denethor was holding out on them, right? Um, Denethor didn't want to talk about this at all. My father tried to change the subject when we brought it up, right? But finally, he grudgingly said, like the one piece of information he, he grudgingly revealed was that Imladris is also called Rivendell and, and you know, Elrond lives there. Um, but he's not going to say anything more, right? Wild horses wouldn't drag the rest of the information he has relevant to that verse out of him, 
Right. <laughs> Fort Thoughtless says, it almost sounds like Denethor knows and dislikes someone who lives in Rivendell. <laughs> perhaps. Perhaps. Um, here's my problem with that reading. Now, okay. Technically, I think there are three different possibilities here. Um, but I don't think that Boromir is being euphemistic about... Or, sorry. I do think that he's being euphemistic. I don't think that he is saying... Dad knew more, but we couldn't get him to say anything else. Because for him to say that would be to be making a public complaint about his father. Right? I mean, that would sound like a criticism. Right? He is not going to say in front of all of these important strangers. So we asked our father, Denethor, Lord of Minas Tirith, wise in the lore of Gondor. We brought this to him. And the dude was totally holding out on us. And we were like, Dad! And he was like, no. And I was like, fine. Right? Boromir's not going to say that in front of all these people. Right? There's no way. Especially at the rhetorical register that he has been operating throughout this speech. Right? Indeed, at which he's operating earlier in that sentence. I mean, you hear it, right? Of these words, we could understand little. And we spoke to our father, Denethor. Lord of Minas Tirith, wise in the lore of Gondor, right? One a positive would have been formal enough. Two a positives, right? You know you are uh, doing some careful word crafting, right? When you use a double a positive like that. So there is no way that he's going to, you know, sort of say passive aggressive, you know, say passive aggressive things about his dad here, right? Um, even if it's true, even if it's true, he's not going to say it. Um, I think that what he is, I think that what he is saying is this is all he knew, right? Um, but he doesn't want to say that. So yeah, so Forthalon says, so Boromir is implying that Denethor is holding out on them to hide the fact that the Lord of the City didn't know the answer to their question? Y yeah. Yeah, no, it's a politeness thing, right? Um, I believe that he is attempting to be transparent, right? He, he's, not, he's not trying to hide anything. He's not trying to fool them, right? He's not attempting to deceive anybody. He is deliberately not deceiving them. He is... That sentence is meant to convey, I think. All my father knew was that Imudris was of old the name among the elves of a far northern dale, where Elrond the half-elven dwelt greatest of lore masters. Right? That, I think, is what he is trying to communicate. But he's not going to say that. Right? He is not going to explicitly acknowledge the limitations of his father's knowledge. He's not going to be like, and... Denethor, Lord of Minas Tirith, wise in the war of Gondor, knew practically nothing about this. He's not going to say that. He would never say that, right? Um, uh, but 
he yeah, and that's interesting. Angris says he says that he's wise in the lore of Gondor, not lore in general, right? Is that uh, kind of hedging his bets, right? He is wise in the lore of Gondor, but hey, I mean, dude, he can't know everything, right? Yeah, I mean, and this is not a Gondor situation, so. Um, but yeah, so I, I think this is a. He is being indirect in saying what he is saying. That I believe to be what Boromir is doing here, right? First, he praises his knowledge, and then he acknowledges the limitations of his father's lore, and therefore, by extension, the lore of Gondor, right? Um, but he does not want to do that, especially keep in mind where this speech started, right? This speech started with him, it seems, feeling a little bit nettled at the fact that Elrond has been going on about how, you know, things are waning in Gondor, right? So he's not, even if just for the sake of, like, patriotism and not respect for his father, he is going to not say, so... The lore of Gondor does not include basic things like what the heck is Imladris and where is it? Or like the, you know, the greatest lore masters of Gondor were totally stumped by this dream and nobody could interpret it, right? Um, exactly, JJ. He's saying it totally wasn't because our lore is failing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so... Um, And yes, Simon, he is, he does build a kind of implicit parallel between his father and Denethor by describing Denethor as wise in the lore of Gondor, a sentence before calling Elrond greatest of lore masters. It's a compliment to Elrond. Again, he's, he's very, Boromir's an excellent speaker, right? Notice how he works his unofficial non- you know, his plausibly deniable acknowledgement of the limitations of the lore of Gondor, but he's packaged packaged it with a compliment to Elrond in that way, right? You know, oh, like, you know, my father is wise in the lore of Gondor, but of course, you know, he's only on the junior varsity lore master team compared to Elrond, right? Obviously, right? Um, so he manages to compliment his host, whom he's just sort of interrupted, diplomatically stroking Elrond's ego, absolutely. Um, but he is also, he is not going to say in public that um, uh, Denethor didn't know, right? So instead he makes his father sound, and I, I, I'm sorry, I forget who said this. Someone said this in the chat a couple minutes ago. Sound like a you know do not go to Denethor for counsel for he will say both no and yes. It makes he makes him sound I think not stubborn or um, uh, annoying but like oracular right. He sounds mysterious like uh, you know this only would he say, implying perhaps he could have said more but it was not wise to do so right. He. In his wisdom, he knew that, the, you know, all he should say is this, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And Mike says, the more he has heard this morning, the more of a big deal it is that Dad didn't know where Imwindris was. Um, yeah, yeah, probably, probably. 
Um, yeah. Um, Brandon, I, and yes, this really is, uh, I think that you are right to see a parallel to Pharaoh's dreams uh, in, uh, in, in, in Genesis and to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel, right? This like, I've had a prophetic dream and I need somebody to interpret it for me. I need somebody to explain it to me, right? And all of the wise men are stumped. Um, yes, yes, uh, it is definitely parallel to that. Um, uh, okay. Now, so that is what I believe Boromir means. I am interpreting Boromir's words based on the con on the rhetorical and diplomatic context of his utterance here, right? Um, in keeping with the style he's been using and the posture that he has been adopting, that is my interpretation of why he says this only would he say. However, I don't think that that's necessarily the only thing to be said about that. I believe that that's what Boromir means. Do I think it's possible that Denethor was actually holding out on him? Oh, heck yeah, I think it's possible that Denethor was holding out on him. Do I think that Denethor knows more than he revealed? Yes, yes. I think it very likely that he knows or guesses more than he reveals. In particular, does Denethor, Lord of Minas Tirith, wise in the lore of Gondor, have a shrewd guess as to what is the sword that was broken? Yep, I think he does, right? Uh, now, does he know about the heirs of Isildur in the north? Not necessarily. Does he know that Nars the shards of Narsil were preserved? Probably. Does he know the shards of Narsil were taken reverently from the battlefield and preserved after? Yes. Would he have known that the shards of Narsil were taken by Isildur and possibly were lost on the Gladden field? Probably. Um, does he... Um, uh, does he know that um, the shards of Narsil survived and were taken by the by Ochtar the back? No, I don't think there's any reason for him necessarily to know that. But again, would Denethor have some kind of shrewd guess that he might possibly theoretically share about what the sword that was broken could be? Yes, but I think that he wouldn't do that. Um, I can easily see that Denethor would hold his peace about what he thinks the sword that was broken might be and why it is a vision is being sent to the heirs of the Lord of Gondor and possibly, as we brought up, the as we raised the possibility to himself as well, which he's just not letting on about. Um, uh, anyway, I... Like, I why are they supposed to seek the sword that was broken? If the sword that was broken is Elendil's sword taken by Isildur and lost with Isildur ages ago, you know, millennia ago, I shouldn't say ages in a Tolkien context, um, then uh, the idea that he could leap from that first line in Isildur's heir you know, a lost heir of Isildur. I mean, that that he could be thinking about that or wondering about that or theorizing about that seems to me entirely plausible, actually. Um, would Denethor guess about the ring? Maybe. Maybe he would. Um, 
does he know what Isildur's bane is? It's possible. It's possible. Um, uh, and I agree, Angris, the sword doesn't necessarily mean that the air is still living, but again, I, I got it. But if it's still in circulation and not at, say, the bottom of the river or in Baradur or something like that or whatever, um, I would think that he um, would suspect that it means that they're, you know, they're, the heirs of Isildur might have survived. Anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Matt, you're right. One of the biggest challenges of this passage and making guesses about it is that the Denethor we meet is very different from the one being discussed now. The Lord giving advice still has a beloved living heir. The one we meet later and are thinking about now has lost his eldest son and lost the Battle of Wills with Sauron. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's a little bit unfair. Um, but, but, not a, not a, not a hundred percent. Yeah, Fred, Fred Rock Paper, I think you're right to say Denethor might have a theory, but he doesn't like his theory and he hopes to be proven wrong, so he isn't going to say anything about it. That seems to me very, very plausible. Um, <clears throat> absolutely. Um, and I agree with both Tony and Mike, who are both saying that in the context of a portentous dream, uh, it seems likely that the sword that was broken is a metaphor for the line of Isildur, right? The lost line of Isildur, um, the lost line of the kings. Um, so, yeah, do, do I think it's possible that Denethor has tumbled to that guess? I absolutely think it's possible. And I am wholly unshocked that for various reasons he didn't bring it up. Right. Um, but, um, okay. Therefore, my brother, seeing how desperate was our need, was eager to heed the dream and seek for Imladris. But, since the way was full of doubt and danger, I took the journey upon myself. Loth was my father to give me leave, and long have I wandered by roads forgotten, seeking the house of Elrond, of which many had heard, but few knew where it lay. His brother is eager to heed the dream and seek for Imladris. So his brother, Boromir's brother, feels that the dream was a summons to him, a command to him, which in his defense, it is. It's in the, imper <clears throat> it's in the imperative mood. <clears throat> seek for the sword that was broken. In Imladris it dwells. Okay. Pretty clear. Right? Um, uh, so, great. Okay. Also notice, seeing how desperate was our need. Right? So, they're in desperate straits. Remember, he and the brother just swam the river recently after throwing down, having the bridge thrown down behind them. Their situation is desperate. They could not stop the armies of the Witch King on the other side of the river. The throwing down of the bridge is only going to delay them for so long, right? And once they cross, they're probably not going to be able to resist them again, right? Their need is desperate. And on the eve of that battle is when the dream first came to them. 
right? Okay, so um, he's going to seek this because I just, out of faith, I would say, right? Um, faith that the dream is um, is correct, right? That the dream is a command from a trustworthy source, right? Um, but since the way was full of doubt and danger, I took the journey upon myself. Why does Boromir come instead of Faramir? Because he insisted. I took the journey on myself since the way was full of doubt and danger. He does, Tony, as I think you said before, he does explain this as like an act of uh, self-sacrifice, right? Yeah. Simon, absolutely. No, I totally agree with you. I mean, if you get this repeated prophetic dream giving you a command, right, um, right at the time when your kingdom looks like it's about to collapse, it is not a stretch to think, well, there might be something in this. Maybe I should pay attention. Um, <clears throat> Boromir takes the journey on himself because it's full of doubt and danger. This, of course, is consistent with what he's just told us earlier on. He also led the company that held the bridgehead while the bridge was thrown down behind them as well. This is Boromir's M.O. He is brave and also selfless, right? Um, I think that's pretty clear, right? Um, he didn't want his brother to face the doubtful and dangerous journey to Imladris, right? Is there pride as well as self-sacrifice there too? Sure, yeah. I mean, he is by implication saying, I think maybe my brother won't make it, right? But, um, yeah, staying, staying to fight the forces of Mordor also involves doubt and danger. You are correct, Aranos. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, Aranos, actually, I think you have a really excellent point there. That's another way in which this action by Boromir is self-sacrificial, right? You could say... That he is, you know, and I, he is, is he a glory grabber, Kit? I mean, you can, you, you can make that argument. You can definitely make that argument. Um, that like, what? Oh, there is like a super special task that has been laid upon our family. No, no, I will do it. Not my brother. Me, me. Right. Easy to see that. But at the same time, remember, <clears throat> leading the troops in battle, there's more glory there. Right. Um. Yeah, yeah. Fourth Dauntless is reminding us that someone else is going to say 
something like, the way is dangerous and doubtful. I cannot ask anyone to take the journey, so I must go myself. Yes. Um, it is a similar line of reasoning that's going to lead Aragorn to the paths of the dead later on. Um, not identical, but similar, right? Um, absolutely. Uh, but, um, but anyway, yeah, so I, I, I think that Boromir stepping aside from leading the armies of Gondor and going off on this journey, um, you know, ab abandoning his command and going off on this journey, there's real self-sacrifice there. And that's a, I think, that's a real act of self-sacrifice um, on the part of Boromir. Uh Why would he go? Why would the Captain General of the Armies of Gondor go on this quest? Because he thought it was important. And he thought it was doubtful and dangerous. And therefore, he took it upon himself. Notice. Loth was my father to give me leave. And long have I wandered by roads forgotten. Loth was my father to give me leave. This didn't go smoothly. Denethor did not approve of Boromir's going. We do not know what he thought about the brother going. We're not told anything about that at all, right? Um, yes, Brandon, there is the implication. Sorry, I keep missing the notifications. Um, Brandon, we did... Um, well... <clears throat> did Boromir ever get did he ever get permission yeah Tony maybe it was a give me leave Master Elrond kind of situation he didn't exactly get leave from Elrond either right um, <clears throat> yeah that's good Loth was my father to give me leave. All he says is my father was very reluctant to give me leave. He did not explicitly say that his father gave him leave. Um, I, anyway, I'm not saying that I think that Boromir, you know, sneaked out of the window at night. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not saying that. Um, I am saying... No, no, Mike, I don't think he would be guilty of lying if Denethor didn't give him leave. He's not said, he didn't say that. He didn't say that he had given him leave. Um, Boromir forced Denethor's hand, yes. That, I think, is the clear implication. Loth was my father to give me leave. He has not explicitly said, but I insisted and would not take no for an answer. But I think it's pretty clear that if he hadn't done so, he wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Evil Dr. Cannon, I, 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 I think I can agree that um, uh, it seems against Boromir's character to go without leave. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I agree with that. 
I think I agree with that. Um, I mean, we're not told one way or the other, so there's no absolute reason why we must theorize that he left without leave. But it seems to me fairly clear that he forced his father's... He insisted. Again, I took the journey upon myself. That is a very active way to do... That's a... Um, I saw somebody commenting on how many how much passive voice was used in used in the poem. It's an excellent observation. We'll get back to that um, when we get back to the poem. But um, what Boromir's words there are the opposite, right? That is a very active construction. I took the journey upon myself. I left on the journey. You know, um, I, you know, there are lots of more indirect ways he could have said that, right? But he says, I took the journey on myself. Loth was my father to give me leave, right? Um, that he did it, whether or not he did it without the leave of his father, he clearly did it against the better judgment of his father, right? That is explicit in the fact that his father was loath to give him leave. Um, so, yes, Mike says it's worded in a way that the brother was very clearly intending to make the journey and had it taken from him. Yes, he does admit that he, the brother was wanting to go, was ready to go, but he, Boromir, insisted on going instead. I am very willing to give Boromir the benefit of the doubt and to say one of the things that motivated him was love for his brother, to spare his brother, since the way was full of doubt and danger. He took it on himself so that he would run the risks and not his little brother. And he's not said explicitly that he was that he's a younger brother, but it's impossible not to see him as a younger brother by now. I think I agree. Somebody was saying that before, and I totally agree. Um, uh, so, yeah, Tony, I agree. There is that air of he is taking responsibility fully for this, not blaming anyone else. Right. It is not his brother's fault. He is here. It is not his father's fault. His, his father attempted to dissuade him. Right. Um, his brother wanted to go. He insists on going. His father is loath to give him leave. But here he is, right? Um, yes. Yes. Yeah, Tom, he is a masterful man. Used uh, 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 one to take what he desired. Yes, he is. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but yet there is, he is skipping something, isn't he? Doesn't the middle of that sentence sound like a non sequitur? Loath was my father to give me leave and long have I wandered by roads forgotten. Didn't he skip a bit there? <laughs> right. Uh, He's kind of drawn the curtain over the final leave-granting scene. I agree with you, Evil Dr. Cannon, that I don't think he went without leave. Um, Explicitly against his father's will or or sneaking out by night. That is not Boromir. But, um, uh, but he doesn't even allude to the actual decision-making scene. 
he doesn't talk about the sort of competition in some sense at least with his brother over who would go right the vying with his brother or the convincing of his father um both of those things happened his brother was overruled and his father's loathness was uh overcome but he doesn't say anything about either one of those things Tarmarthen says he may have omitted a shouty bit. Yeah, yeah. That the scene he's omitting might have been a little noisy. I think quite, quite possibly. Um, and Belongsmond, I agree. This is similar to not wanting to criticize his father or admit his father's ignorance. Right? He again, he's not going to air this kind of laundry in this sort of context. Right? He does acknowledge that his father was loath to give him leave. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Mike was uh, just saying the same thing um yes um long have i wandered by roads forgotten seeking the house of elrond of which many had heard but few knew where it lay um so a couple of you were talking about the uh yeah simon was the first one to ask whom were the roads forgotten by well clearly forgotten by the lore of gondor is where they were forgotten right um, yeah, yeah. But notice, I think even there, he doesn't see... It does get back to the estrangement between elves and, and men, I agree, Tony. Um, it's also... I don't know. I think it still speaks to how... Not sheltered, but um, provincial Boromir is. Right. Um, that question, Simon, your question, who were the roads forgotten by? I don't think it's one that he even like they've been forgotten in Gondor. Right. And since they've been forgotten in Gondor, he speaks of the roads as if they've just been forgotten, like by every obviously by everyone. Right. Long have I wandered by roads forgotten. Um he is definitely not saying long I have wandered by roads which the lore of my country has long ceased to like, which my country has long ceased to maintain and which indeed we've forgotten even existed, right? He's not confessing the limitations of Gondor, but I don't think he's even realizing the fact that by calling them long forgotten roads, he's admitting that lore is waning in Gondor, right? Because it's a Gondorian road he was walking up the whole way. Right. Exactly. Simon. Exactly. He's um, uh, so he is, in fact, giving testimony to the decline of Gondor. But I don't think he realizes that he is giving credence to the argument that Gondor is in decline. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tom says there were a lot of people wandering around Eridor that summer looking for places. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, you could have, uh, uh, you could conceivably have uh, started up, uh, you know, had some like seasonal occupations, setting up a little stand along the Greenway, right, giving directions, right? Shire, yeah, that way, that way, yeah. Imladris, that way. Yeah, keep keep going north. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> selling maps, exactly, exactly. Um, 
Yeah, Mike, I agree with you that Boromir was presum- would presumably have been more polite than the Nazgul. Elrond, Rivendell. <laughs> right, yeah, no, more than that. Um, yep, yep. Um, good. Okay. Um, and Tony, you're right, the Gondorians don't seem to travel much in general. Uh, has Boromir been out of Minas Tirith? I mean, been out of Minas Tirith. He's been out to Ithilien, right, with the army. Has he been out of Gondor? I don't know that he has been out of Gondor. Has he ever visited Rohan before? Was this his first visit to Rohan when he passed through? It might well have been. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But you're right, Fourth Thoughtless, trying to imagine how um, Boromir would have said it politely makes it sound even stranger, right? Hello, Mr. Farmer. Do you know where I can find the secret valley filled with semi-mythical people? Um, that would be awkward as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, he is known in Rohan, Tony, but that's only after uh, he'd visited, right? Um, they knew him uh, and spoke highly of him. But again, we know he had visited when he came through. And I don't exactly know how many of his 110 days he spent in Rohan, right? Um, I would not be surprised by the way. In fact, I would assume that when he shows up in Rohan, they not only helped to horse him, but probably also gave him an escort, like at least as far as the fords. Um, I mean, I don't think you just, like the Lord of Minas Tirith's air comes through and you're just like, here's a horse. Bye now. Right. Uh, have a good time. I mean, I bet they probably did escort him. They wouldn't have escorted him the whole way. Um, but I bet you. So in other words, I'm sure that there were people in Rohan who spent a significant amount of time with Boromir when he was there. Um, yeah, quite possibly Theodred or, or Amir or someone, some marshal of the Mark would not seem at all inappropriate. Uh, to be leading an honor guard um, of Boromir as he goes across the thing. Yeah, yeah, that, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Um, hmm, okay. You like to think it was Grimbold, Valamoinen? Well, he is from Westfold, so he'd know the area. Right? He'd know the territory. I'd like to think so. Big Grimbold fan. Okay. I agree, Simon. Let's get back to the poem. Okay. So I think I'm not going to do the field trip tonight. Because, again, I, I feel bad for Valori not being here tonight. Um, and I want to talk about the poem. So let's talk about the poem, and then we'll call it a night. Okay. In that dream, I thought the eastern sky grew dark. And there was a growing thunder. But in the west, capital W, a pale light lingered. And out of it, I heard a voice, remote but clear, crying. Now, um, the word I am most interested in, in that sentence, is lingered. Lingered? In the sense that the sky is growing dark, but it's still light in the West, right? Um, 
but lingered is a really interesting word to me. Um, yeah, um, Fort Thoughtless says he's obsessing about pale light lately. Um, yeah, pale light is really interesting because, of course, it's often evil. Um, I like Barrowite-ish, even Ringwraith-ish, uh, certainly Morgul light-ish, right? Um, but yeah, praise exactly, that's what I was thinking too. It lingered, I, I can't help but think of the elves, uh, associate the elves with the word lingered. I'm not saying Boromir's explicitly thinking of that, right? Um, but a light lingering in the West uh, does sound to me kind of elvish as well. Um, whether or not he's thinking of that explicitly, I don't know. Um, nor how far west. So there are two questions. As we think about the dream that Boromir is describing, there are two different levels on which I think we need to think about it. One is, what does Boromir understand about it? Now, here's why I think this is important. Because he's the target audience. I mean, okay, Faramir's the target audience primarily, but still, that is to say, like, people who know about what he knows are the target audience, right? Um, a prophetic vision is still a piece of communication, right? Uh, so it doesn't do much good to send a communique that they are absolutely incapable of understanding under any circumstances, right? So the question of what would they think, what would Boromir think um, with, you know, with, when he sees this vision or hears these words is something that we still, I think, um, uh, need to think about, right? That still seems very relevant to, to ask. Um, uh, yeah, so what exactly the capital W West means to Boromir? Um, is he thinking West, like on the continent, to the West of here, right? West and a little bit North. Right? I mean, that is to say, because, of course, notice the very beginning of the like the words that speak out of the light in the West say, seek for the sword that was broken in Imladris it dwells. So is the light coming from Imladris? Right? I mean, it's to the West. So, so one possibility is that it's just westwardly on the continent, that out to the West somewhere, pale light lingers, though the sky is getting dark and stormy, yet still to the West, there is hope somewhere in the West. Right. Um, of course, many of us are thinking about Valinor, or at least of Elvenholm. Um, Sharon is right to say that, uh, and Mike is thinking as well, would they be thinking about Numenor, Westerness, right? I mean, when, they th when a Gondorian thinks about the West, isn't Numenor one of the very first things? that they're going to be thinking about. Now, I hear you. Eastern sky is not capitalized, but West is, right? So that certainly suggests it's not just somewhere off to the West was a light. In the West, capital W. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so I do think that Boromir is associating the voice with the mythic West. I don't know what that means to him. If he's primary, if he's thinking of Numenor, which of course isn't there, so it'd be kind of strange if there were a light still in Numenor. Um, they know about Elvenholm, clearly. I mean, it's clear that they do know about Elvenholm. Um, so, yeah, I don't. Um, here's my issue. Why lingered? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right, Mike. We don't know all that much yet as readers. We know the elves are sailing into the West. We know that Numenor is called Westerness. Um, now, Evil Dr. Cannon points out that we don't know that the capital W West is Boromir's capitalization, right? This account, this speech by Boromir could have been very faithfully um, uh, recorded, reported by Frodo, and he could have capitalized the W suggesting that that was Frodo's interpretation rather than Boromir's. Um, but yes, Mad Violinist, the contrast is drawn with the darkening sky out of the east. The eastern sky grew dark, and there was a growing thunder. So there's change in the eastern sky, right? The east is getting darker. Thunder is growing in the east. That corresponds very closely to what he described about Sauron has returned and Mount Doom is uh, is erupting again and the armies are gathering, right? But in the West, a pale light lingered. We don't have change. We don't have progress there. Just the enduring of a light. Um... Yeah, Tom says uh, lingered suggests the light remained longer than was natural. It does, I think. Um, a pale light lingered, like the sky was getting dark and I expected the whole place was going to get dark. But as it was getting dark, there remained a light in the east or in the west, right? As if there were a light source out there and out of the light that lingered in the, e in the west. What do you want to say east? I heard a voice, remote but clear, crying. Um, the voice is remote. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rowan says, could it be the evening star out there? He doesn't say anything that suggests that it would be a star. Um It does seem like sunset bricktails, but again, I agree with Tom. The use of the verb lingered does suggest that it's it's not just he's not just saying 
It was getting dark in the east, but it still wasn't dark yet in the west. Right? There's more to it than that. Like, it's dark and it's it's almost all dark, but yet, like, there was a a weird, unnat, like, unusual light that remained past where light normally remains. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly, uh, Matt. I don't think it's a sunset image. Um, I think it's... There is a limitation. There is there is an end. There is an edge to the darkness that is spreading from the east. The darkness spreading from the east has not yet been able to touch the pale light that lingers in the west. Um... And the voice that comes from it is remote. Remote but clear. Seek for the sword that was broken. In Imladris it dwells. There shall be counsels taken stronger than Morgul spells. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand for Isildur's bane. No. Hmm. Doesn't scan. Shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. Okay. It's really interesting. That line doesn't scan. The line about the ring doesn't fit. Do you notice that? Do you hear it? Let's set this up. What's the meter? What's the meter? What's the pattern? What's the rhythm of these lines? You don't have to know the fancy poetic names. What's the uh, what's th what's the rhythm? The fundamental rhythm of these words. Ah, break tails. I can see why you would say trochaic because most of the lines start with a stressed syllable. Seek for the sword. There shall be. Um, but it's primarily iambic. Yes. Yes. Um, the sword that was broken in Imladris it dwells. Almost perfectly iambic. There shall be counsels taken stronger than Morgul's spells. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand on another perfect iambic line. For Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. Okay. Um, what's the pattern of the... So that's the basic... The basic rhythm is iambic. But it's not super regular. There are some really regular lines. In Imladris it dwells. That doom is near at hand. Are both perfect iambic lines. Um... But there are many lines that are not. Most of them, really. Seek for the sword that was broken. For the sword that was broken. Um, two unstressed syllables in a row, twice. It scans better in the original Valinorian. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so iambic means unstressed, stressed. In im la dris it dwells. That doom is near at hand. That doom is near at hand is much easier because you got the little short words and then the big words, right? That doom is near at hand. That's an iambic rhythm. Bum bum, bum bum, bum bum. By far the most common rhythm in English poetry. Um, English poetry is tends to the iambic very naturally, right? Um, trochaic meter is uh, flipped around, stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed. That's the Tom Bombadil, right? Um, uh, when you use a lot of word like words like feathered, starling, uh, uh, and uh, uh, words like that. Um, so, um, this poem messes around with them a lot. And that's very common. Um, it's very unusual to have a poem which doesn't vary from the meter at all. It's not, that's not how good poetry works, generally. Um, some of Tolkien's poems can often be very, very regular. It's part of the, when he wants to give them this sort of incantatory sense. Um, a quite regular poem, for instance, is the Nimrodel poem. Um, uh, in fact, when I want to illustrate iambic meter, I usually quote that line from the Nimrodel poem. And cursed the faithless ship that bore him far from Nimrodel is like, it doesn't get more perfectly iambic than that entire set. Um, you may be asking, why am I getting all pedantic about this? It matters. Here's what's... Here's the payoff to thinking carefully about poetic meter. The payoff is a poet who is very conscious of the rhythm and sound of words, and Tolkien is certainly that. A poet who is very conscious of the rhythm and sound of words can convey meaning by the ways in which the lines deviate from the base. So, like, essentially, the kind of the kind of magic of poetry, right? Um, the way that a poet works within poetry. You establish the meter, right? You get the metronome going in your listener's ears, right? In Imladris it dwells. There shall be counsels taken stronger than Morgul's spells. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, for Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. Um, when you get the beat in the head, in, 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 in their heads, some lines will jump out because they vary from it. Some words will jump out because they vary from it, right? Um, there's, um, uh, there's a, 
I won't go through the whole thing, but there's a very famous example of this that I particularly love. It's in a John Donne poem, one of his famous poems. I'm pretty sure this is in Batter My Heart, Three-Person God. It's one of his holy, sacred poems, not one of the sexy ones. And um, uh, he is, and he, the lines are about humility. He's confessing his sins, and he's talking about how um, he is... Uh, uh, like he, he needs to focus less on himself and more on God. And um, one of the lines, it, it's, it's a very, very regular iambic pentameter, um, 10 beats to the line, iambic meter, right? But there's this one line which sounds weird, right? It's off because there's 11 syllables in it. There's an extra syllable. And the syllable, of course, is the word I, and if you take out the I out of that line, it's a perfect iambic line, right? And so it picks up on what he's saying about humility and his own pride, right? It is so awesome, right? Dunn does that kind of thing, right? He's a really, really uh, 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 cool uh, and uh, thoughtful poet. Anyway, that's just an example of what I mean when he's... And, like, if you're not listening to the rhythm, you'll totally miss that, right? You'll miss this awesomeness that's going on in the poem. So, okay. Um... Uh, so what's going on here? What's going on here? How many beats? Forget the syllables for a second. How many beats are in these lines? They're not the same length, right? Or are they? How many stresses by beats, I mean stresses, not total syllables. The easiest ones, of course, are those perfect iambic lines that we were talking about. And those are obviously trimeter. In im la dris, it dwells. Three. That doom is near at hand. Three. Right? Six syllables, three beats, clearly. Even a line which is less perfect, like stronger than Morgul spells. Still three beats. Stronger than Morgul spells. Strong Morg spells. Three beats. And the halfling fourth shall stand. Three beats. Right? Um, what about the other lines. Notice that he's indented every other line. Right? That's in the published text. That's fairly common for Tolkien. And it's also not unusual at all. It's in fact quite common for Tolkien to use a meter that alternates between a four-beat line and a three-beat line. In fact, the lines that I just quoted were exactly that. Um, the, from Nimrodel. So that's very common to have a four-beat line, three-beat line, four-beat line, three-beat line. And the three-beat lines tend to be indented like this. Right? So is that what's happening here? Do we get four-beat lines on the odd-numbered lines? Seek for the sword. There shall be. There shall be. Isildur's bane. Yeah, Tony, just as iambic tetrameter, regular iambic tetrameter, I call hobbit meter, 
that uh, 7-beat system, that what is kind of iambic, iambic heptameter, but it's broken up into 4-3-4-3-4-3, I call that elf meter uh, for the same reason. Tolkien uses that a lot. Um, so how many beats in line 1, 3, 5, and 7 of this poem? tricky. Seek for the sword that was broken. Three, right? Bunch of syllables, but seek for the sword for or the aren't stressed, right? Um, it's not like seek for the sword that was broken, <laughs> right? It's not regular trochee or something like that, right? Seek for the sword that was broken. There shall be counsels taken. Three. There shall be shown a token. Three. For Isildur's bane shall waken. Three. So, the even lines and the odd lines are all three-beat lines. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. But there are these other things going on. Those, it's like he's doing eighth note triplets. Yeah, it's funny. I see uh, Rinrus and Tony, uh, both musicians thinking in musical terms. Uh, yes, it is like eighth notes and quarter notes. If you're hearing it that way, I think you're right to hear it that way. Seek for the sword. It is very like quarter note, eighth note, eighth note, quarter note, right? Seek for the sword that was broken. Um, yes, the stress does clearly fall on those words. And the first line, um, uh, is kind of regular. Stress, unstressed, unstressed, stress, unstressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, broken. Seek for the sword that was broken. There shall be counsels taken. Okay. And the, fir the first line goes to stressed, unstressed at the very end. The second, the third line goes stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed twice at the end. Counsels taken. That's a trochaic feel right there. There shall be there shall be counsels taken. Seek for the sword that was broken. There shall be shown a token. Same thing. Shown a to token. Yeah. Yep. Yep. There shall be shown a token. For Isildur's Isildur's Trying to figure out how the poem wants that pronounced. For Isildur's bane shall waken. Okay, bane shall waken is the same pattern that we see in line three and five. Counsels taken, shona token. Bane shall waken. Yes. 
Yes. So the ends of lines three, five, and seven are all the same, with two, apparently, two trochaic feet, right? Councils, taken. Shona, token. Bane shall waken. Yes. Okay. I agree that the pattern, even the pattern of The poem, by the way, clearly wants to pronounce Imladris with the stress on the first syllable, not the second. If you say Imladris, you can say that if you want, but you can't say it in that line. In Imladris it dwells. The I am's really force your hand there. Um, just like I'm forced to say Gilgalad uh, in the poem, right? Because the poem forces me to say that, even though I don't like it. Um, yeah. Typically in Elvish names, the stress is on the second syllable. Exactly. Like you might think Imladris, except not. Clearly not in that line. So again, that's why I'm trying to listen to the, not to the rules, but to the poetry here. That the first syllable of Isildur's name would be short, fits the pattern, right? For the, that was, shall be. Um shall be, shall be, for is, right? For is silters, bane shall waken. That last line. Yeah, exactly. Isildur is a triplet with the emphasis on is. I agree. For Isil. No, I don't think so. Isildur? No, I don't think so. Well, I don't know, Bricktails. I could be I could be convinced. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. That line is weird. Look at the beginning of the line. You see what's different about the beginning of that line that makes it stand out from all the other odd lines, right? You see that? It starts unstressed, Katriana. Absolutely. That is different from any other odd line. Now, it's you can kind of miss it because um, almost all of the even lines start unstressed, right? Yes, Simon. That's just when I was reading the poem through, you heard me pause on that line, right? And I was paused on, pausing on that line because I was noticing the weirdness. I do think it's purposely weird. The weird, the line in which Isildur's bane is described as wakening, the line about the ring breaks the pattern, right? Seek for the sword. There shall be counsels. There shall be shown for Isildur's bane. Whether you say for Isildur's bane or whether you say for Isildur's bane shall waken, whichever way you say it, it's different. It's weird, right? Um, that line feels different. What I want to... Yeah, Mike, exactly. That's kind of the point. It is like a microcosm of the Lord of the Rings, right? You know, Isildur's Bane awakens and everything everything goes straight to hell, right? Now, exactly. Um... 
Okay, here's what I'm trying to figure out. How is it deviating? How is it deviating? So, one one possibility. Does it have the same number of syllables? Look at lines three and five. Three and five follow exactly the same pattern and indeed use many of exactly the same words, right? Um, there, there shall be councils taken, right? Seven syllables. The, the first strong syllable, the two weak syllables, right? The two quick weak syllables. And then trochaic, 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 right? There shall be councils taken. There shall be shown a token. Seven syllables. For Isildur's bane shall waken. Eight syllables. My first impulse was to say, especially if we put the stress on Isildur, for Isildur's bane shall waken. It sounds like we've just skipped the stress at the first syllable, right? Normally it's stress, unstressed, unstressed. And instead we just start unstressed, unstressed, right? Um, uh, so my first thought was, oh, it's varying from the last two by dropping the stressed syllable at the beginning of the line, right? But it doesn't do that. Far from dropping the, um, far from dropping the syllable, it adds a syllable. It's got a superfluous syllable in there, right? So I don't think that's what's going on. Okay. I think all things considered I am I'm now coming around to saying to thinking that the poem wants us to say Isildur, not Isildur. Um who was it? Bruce, was it you? Or was it Rinroos, maybe? Somebody was saying that the four at the beginning of that line sounds like a sounds like a, a grace note. If you delete the four and put the stress on the first syllable, then the line is exactly the same as the last two. Isildur's bane shall waken. Yeah, Bruce, that was you? Yeah. Um, it sounds exactly the same, right? It is the same line, so it's the same. If you pronounce the, the, if you put the stress on the is at the beginning, then it's exactly the same line with just the added, the added syllable, unstressed syllable at the beginning, which is fine. Uh, Fort Thoughtless says, doesn't it make more sense to pronounce the names as the rules specify and ask why the poem deviates from its structure? No. <laughs> no. No, it doesn't. Um, no. Nope. Can't do it. Can't do it, Fort Thoughtless. 
Can't do it. I cannot ab- I absolutely cannot say in Imladris it dwells. No. 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 And I don't know if I can convince you of this. In Imladris it dwells is not just a deviation. It's a crappy line. That's not a line that deviates from the pattern. That's a line that falls on its face. In Imladris it dwells. You just can't, yeah, no, no. You can't. I, I can't. No. You can't do that. That's wrong. That's just wrong. Um, I could be talked around to Isildur. But the pattern is too strong for me. Look, here's the thing. Nobody had a gun to Tolkien's head <laughs> forcing him to do these lines, right? He knew how he wanted these names pronounced. And if he wanted <laughs> that we know of, says JJ, true enough. <laughs> true enough. Um, uh, again, like in Imladris it dwells. That doom is near at hand. The perfect iambic lines in lines two and six of this poem are too strong and too important to the sound of this whole poem. Um, If Tolkien meant that word to be pronounced imladris, he would have started the line with imladris and not within. I mean, it's just, I, I... I refuse to believe it. Um, yeah, that is a real... Yeah, thank you, um, uh, Aranos, for drawing my attention to uh, Commander Wilkins's comment on the Twitch channel. He says, I'm wondering if having Imladris with a clearly inverted stress and Isildur with a likewise inverted stress that is inverted from how the rules of Elvish pronunciation say they're supposed to be, is meant to bring into focus the man-elf split. That is, if Elvish normally stresses the second syllable and Westron normally stresses the first, then inverting them can bring attention to the chasm between man and elf, as each would notice something weird about how the poem is read. Um, possibly. Possibly. Um, yeah, Belongsmond, exactly. So it would reflect exactly as you're suggesting, Belongsmond, the way they say Imladris in Gondor? Maybe. Maybe. I could buy that. Um, <laughs> Rinru says, in Imladris it dwells must be a line in a Vogon poem somewhere. Yes, that is it. There's it. There's there's some distinct Vogonity about that line pronounced if you pronounce Imladris properly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, anyway, anyway, okay. Um, okay. Sorry, can I just make a confession right now? I've never done this before with this poem. Or rather, when I've done this with this poem, I've done it way too swiftly. I am noticing noticing things about the metrical shape of this poem that I've never noticed before. You'll notice I've not even gotten a rhyme scheme yet, right? Because I'm still on rhythm. Because the rhythm of this poem is weird and interesting. Okay. Okay. So. 
Yes. So the four... Yeah, the rhythm is going to get me. Ray Burns, you are so correct. Um, uh, oh, sorry. Vogon, Vogonity. Uh, I, 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 Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference. Uh, Vogons. Um, uh, really bad poetry. Sorry. Um, okay. Okay. It was the 42nd anniversary of the Hitchhiker's Guide two, two days ago. Holy cow, Christy. I did not know that. That's really cool. All right. All right. Okay. Sorry. Getting back to it. So, for Isidore's Bane shall waken. Yes, that is how that line should go. What is the effect of the deviation then? What is the effect of giving that line eight syllables? And the answer is, by adding the grace note at the beginning, it lays, it doesn't take away from the stress. It lays a special stress on um, Isildur's, Isildur's Bane, right? Yes, for is for Isildur's Bane shall waken, right? You get the, you get the upbeat, and then bam, for Isildur's Bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly it. Totally, totally sold on that reading and it and it fits again it follows the same pattern but with that little emphasis with the upbeat there shall be counsels taken there shall be shown a token for Isildur's bane shall waken yeah oh yeah no that's it that's correct seek for the sword that was broken there shall be counsels taken there shall be shown a token for Isildur's bane shall waken hear it hear it the repetition, which sounds at first, and Tolkien does this a lot, by the way. You'll look through and you'll be like, that's ah, just, he's just deviating all over the place, right? It's just, no, what he's done, what he's done is, like, made up his own meter, essentially, right? Um, the reason we're like, hey, is it Troki? Is it I am? Is it Anapest? I'm not quite sure, is because it's none of those things. It's, he has established this seven um, syllable pattern, right? Um, it still varies. The first line is not exactly the same. Seek for the sword that was broken. Um, it's eight syllables in the first line, too. There's an extra one there in, in the beginning. Um, but, anyway. Okay. But, but you'll, So he establishes this rhythmic pattern, this idiosyncratic rhythmic pattern and then repeats it very faithfully with only minor variations so instead of thinking like this is a poem that is deviating all the heck over the place no it's not it's not an irregular poem at all it's highly regular it's just idiosyncratic right and Tolkien did this kind of thing a lot actually Tolkien loved to experiment with sound patterns it's one of the things that I love about Tolkien as a poet Okay. There shall be counsels taken. There shall be shown a token. For, Is for Isildur's bane shall waken. Now, let's see how this fits with the even numbers. In Imladris it dwells. Stronger than Morgul spells. That doom is near at hand. And the halfling forth shall stand. Of the even-numbered lines, two and six are the two perfect iambic lines. In Imladris it dwells, that doom is near at hand. 
lines two or lines four and eight rather are a little bit different, right? Line four is the weirdest in one way because it's the only even numbered line that starts with a stress stronger than Morgul spells. Stronger than Morgul spells. Oh. In fact, it's the exact same pattern as the odd numbers, except it cuts off a syllable, right? Let's see. If instead of spells, we said, uh, give me a trochaic two-syllable word. Um, uh, it doesn't matter. Any magic. Thank you, Mike. That would be appropriate. I was thinking of the word hamster, but magic works too. Okay, magic, yes. So if he said stronger than Morgul magic, that would be exactly the same meter, exactly the same rhythm as the... the no, sorry. Hey, so sue me, Rayburns. No, not stronger than Morgul hamsters. I'm just... I was just going to pick it for the magical purposes. Anyway, um... <laughs> you smell a t-shirt design? <laughs> Morgul hamsters? Sure, yeah. I, absolutely. I know it doesn't rhyme. Forget the rhyme. No, no, I'm just thinking, just, I'm isolating something here, right? I'm not saying the line is wrong. I'm just saying, if you did that, if you use the word magic there at the end, it would be precisely the same rhythm. In other words, line four, um echoes the odd-numbered rhythm much more closely than the other rhymes. Lines two and six are perfect iams, which the other lines are not at all. In fact, there is not a single iambic foot in any of the odd... I mean, you could say... You could argue that for Isild, for is, is an iambic foot, I guess, if you want to. But again, I don't think that the line works that way. The, f- the, f- the, the pattern is just different. Anyway, so, okay. Um, I, so there, there's not a single, I will stand by the statement that there's not a single iambic foot anywhere in the odd lines of this poem. Um, yet we have the two perfectly iambic full lines, trimeter lines, in lines two and six. So the fact that line four there in the middle, so strongly echoes the odd line rhythm, but doesn't exactly approximate it. Spells instead of magic, right? So it uh, it just it 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 sh- it shortens it, right? It cuts it off. How about the last line? How about eight? how about eight? And the halfling fourth shall stand. Just like line seven. It's just an extra, it's just one extra foot. If you take out the and, ignore the and. The halfling fourth shall stand is a perfect iambic line. Exactly like in Imlidris it dwells. In Imlidris it dwells. That doom is near at hand. The halfling fourth shall stand. Exactly the same. Exactly the same. Right? So both of the last two lines take the dominant rhythm of their line set and they add the stress at the beginning, the extra syllable at the beginning. For Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth, and the halfling forth shall stand. 
Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Cool. Okay. That means, therefore, line four is super weird. Not super weird in the whole context of the poem. It's almost exactly like the odd lines, the rhythm of the odd lines. But it's super weird that that line alone, all of the other even-numbered lines, two, six, and eight, all of... (laughs) Musical, did you find an image of a Morgul hamster, or did you just make that? (laughs) That's kind of amazing. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. Uh, (laughs) That's incredible. Um... Anyway, yeah, sorry. It's an image of a cartoon hamster holding a book and surrounded by, like, glowy, creepy uh, green light. That's amazing. Anyway, okay. I'm trying to figure out line four. I can understand the deviations in line seven and eight. Because the extra unstressed syllable at the beginning emphasizes it, right? There shall be shown there shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, for Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. Awesome. Awesome. The way that Tolkien does and does the same thing in both lines, right? The the grace note, right, the upbeat. Uh, Bruce, as you were suggesting, in both of those last two lines, lends, lends this extra weight on Isildur's bane and the halfling, right? Which is awesome. Love that. Love that. Love that. And I love the shift back and forth between this idiosyncratic seven-syllable pattern that he's developed. Stressed, unstressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stress, unstressed, Right? Seek for the sword that was broken. In Imladris it dwells. There shall be counsels taken. Stronger than Morgul spells. <laughs> oh man, I crashed out of the game. It's okay. Not field tripping tonight. There shall be shown a token. That doom is near at hand. For Isildur's bane shall waken. And the halfling forth shall stand. The pattern is almost perfect. The first line adds an extra syllable. The last two lines add those grace notes at the beginning. The only line of this poem that is that breaks the pattern, completely breaks the pattern, is stronger than Morgul spells. Why? Why break the pattern there? What is the effect of breaking the pattern there? It's also the end of the first sentence. Unsurprisingly, Tolkien often does this, right? Notice the syntax of the sentences here divide the poem into two sentences, each of which is a quatrain, four lines, right? Totally standard. Uh, Here's the other thing. That deviant line is also sandwiched 
between the two lines that are nearly um, the two lines that are nearly repetitions of each other, right? There shall be counsels taken. There shall be shown a token. And in between them is the extra line. It's almost like the poem takes this one idea in the middle, right? The, the deviation in the rhythm breaks the poem into three parts. Do you see what I mean? We've got the first two lines, which establish the pattern. Seek for the sword that was broken, in Imladris it dwells. Semicolon. Right? And that's the imperative statement. Right? That's the command. Then we're given some more information. Right? When you do seek it, what's going to happen in Imladris? I wonder. There shall be counsels taken, stronger than Morgul's spells. There shall be shown a token. Right? Almost like you guys were talking about triplets. It's almost like those three lines form a triplet, right? Repeating in almost exactly the same rhythm and with in the, in the first and third lines of that triad, almost exactly the same words, right? There shall be counsels taken stronger than Morgul's spells. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand. And with that doom is near at hand with line six, we return to the rhythm of the poem. It's almost like... It's almost like we've taken one line and expanded it into three, if you see what I mean, right? Um, as if, like, the alternation between, let's just call it the special meter, right, and the odd lines, between the special meter and the iambic t trimeter, right, goes, like, one, one, three, one, 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 right? Um, the first couplet and the last couplet stand apart. Seek for the sword that was broken, in Imladris it dwells. For, for Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. The first is further separated, so the, those are the only two sort of perfect pairings, right? And uh, that is perfectly following the rhythmical pattern of the poem. The first one is set apart also by the imperative mood. It's the only command, right? Everything else is in the indicative, but the first one is in the imperative. Seek for the sword that was broken, in Imladris it dwells. And the last pair is set aside by those grace notes. For Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. For, and as you guys were saying, for meaning because. All of this is because Isildur's bane shall waken, right? For Isildur's bane shall waken. That's the reason for the doom. That's the reason to seek Imudris, right? And the halfling forth shall stand, right? Okay. Then in the middle, you have these central four lines. And again, they seem to me to form almost like this one sort of extended uh, couplet, Right. Where you have the special meter, but the special meter repeated three times and then you finally get the ending of the couplet or sort of the transition out of that little um, extended bit at the beginning. There shall be count in, in the middle. Sorry. There shall be counsels taken stronger than Morgul spells. There shall be shown a token 
that doom is near at hand. That doom is near at hand is the transition out of that, back to the original pattern, which it's then going to follow, right? For Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. Yes. Um, it's kind of similar, Tony, to the way the meter changes in the ring verse, but th- it, this is more complicated than that. And no, no, okay. No, I think in the end my answer is no, it's not like that, because... Um, and don't worry, Matt, you're not going to miss much. We're, I'm totally going to let you guys go soon. I'm not going to, after this, be like, and now let's talk about the content of the poem. No, no, no. We'll, we'll, we'll do that next week. But, so I'm almost done. I'm almost done. As soon as I finish figuring out the rhythm, which is making me feel so much better, I will now be able to sleep, so that'll be good. I mean, you know, eventually. It's not late. But, um... Yeah. Okay. Don't worry, Simon. We'll get to the content. I promise, but not tonight. Um, yeah. That doom is near at hand. Again, is that transition. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like that. That seems to me a very sensible kind of logic of the structure, because it's not just a deviation. This poem is too carefully structured rhythmically. Now that I have really parsed it out and worked it through, I can see that this poem is much more regular, much more carefully crafted than I expected, or than I thought before. Um, I didn't see this pattern before, but I see it now. And to have that fourth line be not just a deviation from the iambic pattern of the rest of the even lines, but to be an almost exact repetition of the odd ones. Like, that's not just something that happens. Okay. Okay. Love that. Okay. We will keep this in mind. So I will stop now and let you guys go to bed at last. Um, But uh, next time we'll pick back up with the poem We'll think about the rhyme scheme and how the rhyme scheme connects with this rhythmical pattern that we're talking about, because I haven't even been thinking about the rhyme at all yet. Um, And then, of course, we'll think about the syntax and the content of the poem, what it actually says and what it is communicating to Boromir and what it means for the council as a whole. Okay. Whew. We accomplished something. I learned something. I now understand a Tolkien poem I didn't understand before. Wasn't that fun? Um, okay. Whew. All right. That was good. Um, yeah. Simon says, The amount of detailed thought and structure in these poems really drives home to me how much of a perfectionist Tolkien was. I can't even imagine how many hours he must have spent writing them. Yes. Yes. I, I, I absolutely agree. Um, okay. Whew. Thanks for your patience, everyone. Thanks for indulging me working through that because I feel so much better now. Um, uh, good night, everybody. Try not to have nightmares about Morgul hamsters. And I will. So I, I should be here next week. Sunshine Mood is next week, but I'm not leaving on Tuesday. So thank you very much, everybody. Good night. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.